Welcome to From Duck Till Dark, Outside the Marvel Studios. An audio celebration of the films based on Marvel Comics characters released before and during the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Enough said. Face front, true believers. This is George Soroy, and welcome to the latest episode of From Duck Till Dark, Outside the Marvel Studios. For those of you who are just now starting to listen to this show, this is part of the National Podcast Post-Month Challenge, which means that every episode in this show will be recorded, edited, and posted to the internet every day throughout November. In the case of this show, it's actually going to be a little bit past November and into December, since there are 35 different movies that we're going to be covering as part of the collection of Marvel movies that are outside the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so this has been already a very, very interesting look at the evolution of the Marvel movie. It started off very, very oddly with 1986's Howard the Duck with quite a big budget, but not much of a return on that budget. And then afterwards, uh, it drifted into this no-budget, no-man's land with uh, The Punisher, Captain America, and The Fantastic Four all failing to get U.S. distribution. And in the case of The Fantastic Four, a movie that didn't even see the light of day. So everything that was happening in, in Marvel was not very good, especially considering a couple years after the Fantastic Four, that was when that was when the company itself had to de- declare bankruptcy. And then in 1997, things were definitely not looking good for the genre as a whole because we were treated with the and I say treated in uh, the most sarcastic way possible, but comic book movie fans were given the abomination that became Batman and Robin in the summer of 1997. And we're also given a very, very forgettable steal, a, a mediocre at best spawn. Thankfully, Men in Black was there to provide a really fun and entertaining um, movie. However, it was basically part of a fledgling comic book line that was done by both Marvel and Malibu Comics. And in August of 1998, to be exact, we were given... Blade. And Blade showed that a Marvel movie could make it to the big screen and be a success. And Avi Arad was able to hold up Blade as an example of what can happen when you have filmmakers taking the property seriously. And so that all of a sudden got some renewed interest from all the other places where the different properties were scattered. In terms of 20th Century Fox, they happened to have on hand the property X-Men. Fox Kids had the animated series, which was doing very well for itself. And if you haven't seen that show yet, I definitely recommend it. If not anything, but for one of the most kick-ass intro music I have ever heard for an animated series, but it was definitely a matter of what direction they were going to go in with the movie itself. They knew that there was going to be one, but they weren't sure exactly how to get there. And 
Thankfully, after Blade became a success, then all of a sudden Marvel started really... So it was after August of 1998 when Blade proved to be a success. That was when 20th Century Fox started to take their property a little bit more seriously. And so eventually... Director Brian Singer was brought on board. At this point, he had done The Usual Suspects, which was very well acclaimed. And he also had done the Stephen King adaptation of Apt Pupil. So this was a chance to give a give Singer a larger budget and see where he could go with it. At one point, Chris McQuarrie, the Academy Award-winning screenwriter of The Usual Suspects, was brought in to work on the screenplay. And there was also Ed Solomon, the writer of Men in Black, who also took a crack at it. Eventually, the screenwriter wound up being a gentleman named David Hayter, who was working as an assistant for Brian Singer. And he had an affinity for this property. And he had various ideas that he was able to present to Brian Singer after the various story meetings. And at some point, David uh, Hayter was able to provide some answers for some of those issues that he was having to the point where Brian wound up bringing him into the story editing meetings and wound up working with him and working with Fox to eventually get screenplay credit. And so he was off and running. Now, in a lot of cases, uh, in a lot of different drafts, it was known as Wolverine and the X-Men, but eventually it just became X-Men. But the big question was who was going to play these roles. Getting Patrick Stewart was incredibly inspired casting to play Charles Xavier. Even more inspired casting was bringing in Ian McKellen from Apt Pupil and set him up as Magneto, Eric Lenshaw. You also had Halle Berry coming aboard as Storm. Uh, she This was still a couple of years away from her winning her Best Actress Oscar for Monsters Ball. And there was also, there was also Rebecca Romaine Stamos, at the time, to play Mystique. Ray Park, fresh off of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, as Toad. You also have James Marsden playing the role of Cyclops. And you have Famke Jansen, whereas Exenia uh, Onatop from GoldenEye, and she was Jean Grey. And you had Academy Award winner Anna Paquin as Rogue, which a lot of people looked at as really odd casting, considering that uh, Rogue is in the comics and on the animated series a much older character. But I really gravitated toward the idea that they had for Rogue because this was a character that was that, that was that was younger. She was in she was going through puberty. She was going through discovering boys and now all of a sudden she is also discovering that she has this power that can sap people's life force if she were to touch them. Now, how perfect is that for a teenage girl? It's ideal. It was a great, great move by everyone involved. Now, the big question was who was going to play Wolverine? And a lot of credit goes over to a neighboring studio, and that was Paramount Pictures. And in the year 2000, Paramount had released the second installment in the Mission Impossible series. John Woo had directed this one, and it was a lot of it was a lot of back and forth between Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise, doing his ripping off one mask after another. And you also had another character, a rival character, Sean Ambrose, played by Doug Ray Scott, who was also doing the same thing, pulling off one mask after another. So you had two different 
masters of disguise, so to speak, going against one another. And it was a very interesting dynamic. At the same time, the movie itself, it didn't really work all that all that well for me. It just seemed like it was trying to be like an American James Bond when Mission Impossible itself really thrives when there's a team element to it. So it just wound up being like the Ethan Hunt show for the second one. But Doug Ray Scott was originally the the actor who was going to be Wolverine. And because of some production delays, Doug Ray Scott had to bow out of the role. And so some new screen tests wound up wound up going into motion. And eventually, 20th Century Fox decided to take a chance on this little-known Australian actor who is most known for roles on the stage, specifically Oklahoma. So this this musical theater actor that no one knew about all of a sudden became one of the top stars in the industry almost overnight. And he earned every single bit of that acclaim. And that, my friends, is actor Hugh Jackman, who would go on to play Logan slash Wolverine in quite a few installments. He would go through various twists and turns, but man, he played him so, so well. And I am really excited that we get to see so many different elements of Wolverine in the coming films. The main thing for me for this film I knew that this, if this was going to be a success, then this was going to open a lot of doors for the comic book genre. And I have always been a fan of X-Men, um, not a devout reader of the comics, but I knew them enough. I had the, I had read the Dark Phoenix story, the Dark Phoenix trade paperback multiple times. I kept an eye on various big stories that were happening within the various X-Men titles. I was also a watcher of the animated series. I just really enjoyed getting to know all of these characters. And thankfully, the movie itself did not disappoint. I remember seeing it on opening night, absolutely loving it. And then the next night I went with uh, my friend Joe and then Later on the next week, I took my father to see it as a Father's Day gift. So it wound up being three different times within one week that I saw this movie. So yeah, I was a fan. And thankfully, I wasn't the only one because I will never forget when my father and I went to go see it in the theaters and he just leaned over to me and just went, this is really good around like the halfway scene. And that was the at the train station. He was really into it. I was thrilled that he was. And... I really got into the fact that this was, even though there was a lot, a good amount of action, it was still very condensed. I knew that this was going to be something really big. I, this had the potential to be something really big. As long as this one connected with an audience, then the sky was the limit for where this whole franchise could go. And I am very happy to have been right on this. And so I have all the recommendations in the world for uh, that first X-Men movie, even though it plays very small, almost like a movie of the week kind of feel to it. It does have so much going for it. There's a lot that, uh, that teases what's to come. And 
some really good dynamic between all of the different characters, especially Wolverine and Rogue. I love how the two of them bond really well in this one. I also really enjoyed the music score. The music score was a last minute edition. John Ottman was supposed to be the editor and the music composer, but he had an opportunity to direct an Urban Legends movie. So he definitely went ahead and didn't want to pass that up. So he went ahead and, and took that and ran with it. However, Brian Singer was short a music composer. And so he brought in Michael Kamen and who did a solid job. It's it's not a terrific score, but it's a solid score. And it's very, a lot of very catchy themes to it, especially during the end. I do enjoy that that theme that, uh, that he was able to provide. Overall, I was really, really happy with this film. I love the fact that it really went out of its way to take the, to, to take the property seriously. The fact that it started off in the time of the Holocaust, like that was, that was very, very ballsy as we got to be introduced to a young Eric Lenshare. And it was overall, I was really taken by this whole thing, by the entire film. And, uh, and the ending scene I thought was just a perfect harbinger of things to come with that wonderful chess match between Xavier and Eric in the plastic prison. And what's really cool is that neither Patrick Stewart nor Ian McKellen had ever played chess. And so Singer took them through a quick lesson. They brought in a chess expert and that chess expert showed them a specific strategy that the two of them used that was called from what I, from what I remember a pawn attack. Every move that was used in all in those in that short scene right at the end of it, it was only with pawns. And so it gave it like this little extra element of these two puppet masters basically just kind of using their own, their own chosen puppets. For Xavier, obviously, it was the X-Men. And for Eric, it was the Brotherhood of Mutants. And it was just a really fun way to really kind of put an exclamation point on this first film. Kudos to Zach Comtois, the guitarist uh, for Britney Spears, and was also the gentleman responsible for the intro and outro music for my Excelsior Journeys series, because uh, he said the best thing today when when he, when he saw the, the poster graphic on my Instagram account. He said this was the movie that walked, the comic book movie that walked, so that others after it could run. And yeah, couldn't think of a better way to to label that. So definitely recommend seeing the first film, even if it may seem dated after all these years, it definitely still, for me, it still holds up. And I really hope you give it a shot. So if you have any sort of suggestions, any sort of comments about the show, about any of these movies that are covered, please go to the Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash from duck till dark. And I look forward to, to your feedback on all of these. Have you been enjoying this, this uh, little series? What would you like to see next for From Duck Till Dark? After all these movies are covered, what would you like to see as the future for this podcast? Looking forward to hearing that from you. And until next time, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward and Excelsior. I'll see you tomorrow.